what can I say about Peter Boland? <laughs> oh, professor and, and singer and songwriter and performer and, and, and every time he comes to, to speak to us here at Vision, he, he uh, always takes us very, very deep. And, uh, and he always asks the big, big questions. And don't we love that, right? Don't we love sitting in those big questions? So without further ado, let me please bring up Peter Boland. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Oh, boy. It's tough to go to work after that space that was just created there. But I got to punch in and do my thing here. So thanks for, thanks for the invitation always to be a part of this beautiful, beautiful place and what you all and we all co-create here every, every uh, Sunday. So my talk is called Fundamentalism Versus Spirituality. It sounds combative when I put it that way, though, doesn't it? And, and I suppose on one level it is, and I know we all know that underneath that level of, con of conflict that exists in our families, in our nation, and in the world, there is a harmony and there is a oneness. But the fact remains that all is not well, and that there is struggle and strife in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in the larger community. And maybe it's important to think about that too. I don't offer any solutions, answers, and I can't heal all the wounds today. So let's just know that. Let's just know that. But I tell you what I think we can do. I tell you what I think we can do in the next 20 minutes or so, and that is we can all walk out of here with a little bit better of a sense of what fundamentalism means and what spirituality means. And maybe together, I think we can begin to heal some of the struggle that we find ourselves in. So have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious? Yeah, you may have said that even. What does that mean? Let's think about that today. And, and, and do you have any fundamentalists in your family? Um, yeah, and, and what, is, what is fundamentalism exactly? What does that mean? So I think there's a deep rift between these two perspectives. And before we can even talk about bridging that chasm or healing that wound, we have to come to a better understanding of what both of those perspectives are, what their origins are, and perhaps even what the underlying consciousness beneath them is that gives rise to those stances in the world, those ideologies, those perspectives. So let's start with, fun, with fundamentalism. Let's just figure out what it actually is. I, the word fundamentalism gets its name from a series of 12 pamphlets published between 1910 and 1915, so about 100 years ago here in the U.S., published by a conservative evangelical group. And they were um, loosely associated with the Southern Baptists. They published this series of pamphlets called The Fundamentals, A Testimony to the Truth. And they were pushing back against something. They were pushing back against two things that was happening, that were happening in the early, early 20th century. One was this sort of new wave of liberal theology coming largely out of Europe, out of Germany, um, out of the 19th century, where scholars of religious studies were reading the Bible differently, and they were finding lots of 
structural and plot point and historical errors, and they were gleefully pointing all of that out. <laughs> and they were talking about contradictions between the four Gospels and how Genesis doesn't make any sense and all that kind of stuff. And that was not received well, as you could imagine, in certain more parochial circles. So all that liberal theology got these guys in kind of a combat stance, like, wait a minute, we have to push back against that. The second thing that this group was pushing back against was, as you might expect, that the wave of scientific literacy that was increasing. Charles Dar Darwin, theory of evolution, all kinds of new information about how old the universe actually is and all that stuff. And they were, I think, I think they felt threatened by those two things that were happening. So they kind of circled the wagons and said, man, We've got to stake out our territory. So these pamphlets called The Fundamentals, A Testimony to Truth, called for, among other things, a strictly literal interpretation of the Bible. This is their starting point, that the Bible contains no parable, no, no metaphor, no mythology. It is factually, scientifically, journalistically accurate. And, and that's where they planted their flag, and, and that's where fundamentalism, I think, gets its name. They wanted to go back to what they believe were the fundamentals, which to them meant the literal interpretation of Scripture. So that's, that's I think, the central meaning of the word fun, fundamentalism. But wrapped up in that, and this gets a little richer, right? Wrapped up in that is the idea that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that it has no flaws from the first letter to the very last letter. And that the Bible, therefore, should be the supreme and unimpeachable authority wherever and whenever it comes into conflict with anything else, like science or the state or secular education, or, and this is where it gets maybe creepy, the tenets of other religions. Yeah. So far from the perspective of all religions are true, you know, this is what's creeping up through the fundamentalist perspective is an unequivocal Christian supremacy. The idea that in the face of the, tr the inerrant truth of the Bible, you are, you are claiming that all other religions are therefore false. And that's, that's, those are fighting words. Yeah, I don't know how to sugarcoat that. I don't know how to talk it out with that perspective. I don't know how to make peace with that perspective. If your fundamental starting point is I am deeply wrong until I agree with you. Where's the dialogue opportunity there, right? That's what makes this difficult. So soon after that, the term fundamentalism began to kind of spread into the wider lexicon. People began applying the word fundamentalism to things outside of Christianity. So in the 1970s, for example, people began to talk about Islamic fun fundamentalism much to the frustration of the Muslim community because, wait a minute, what, why are you putting that Christian word on us? So the word is getting sort of sloppier and broader and bigger, but it still kind of has sticking power. It, people still talk about that. And I think today the word fundamentalism refers to a particular stance, say within Judaism, we can talk about Jewish fundamentalism, Hindu fun fundamentalism, Islamic fundamentalism. It, it's, a, it's a useful label, and it has some of the same energy, right? So I think that, let me back up and put it this way. I think the fundamentalist perspective, no matter where you find it, has four key characteristics. The first one we've already thought about, strict adherence 
to a literal interpretation of Scripture. So because there's some line in, Le- in Leviticus which seems to make gay sex a taboo, then that, in the mind of a fundamentalist, means that for all time, in all cultures, in all places, in all contexts, genital contact between members of the same gender is a violation of God's law. That's fundamentalism, right? To take a little line about from a, from a text written by an ancient tribe of shepherds that lived three, 4,000 years ago on the other side of the world. They were obviously squeamish about gay sex, and they built that into their tribal code. At least the leadership who wrote their texts did. And then all of a sudden, everybody on earth has to live by that law. That's what happens when you claim biblical inerrancy. Whereas hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other laws in the Torah are happily thrown away. (laughs) All the stuff about slavery, about killing goats in the synagogue, you know, they're, they're not doing that anymore. And so that's one of the challenges. How about creationism? There's another fruit from that same tree. If you're going to take scripture as science, then you get these rather curious claims about the earth being, about the universe being 5,000 years old, and so on and so on. Uh, I'm not going to give that a lot of time this morning. Moving on. The second, I think, crucial quality of the fundamentalist perspective is there's also a rigid adherence to past practices. The way we used to do it is the right way, and we always need to do it that way. Tradition, right? Can I drop a little fiddler on the roof on you there? You know, there's that. Why do we do that? I don't know. We've just always done it, so it's right. And there's that kind of attachment to the past for comfort, for stability. So that's, I think, an interesting second quality. The, and, and, and married together with that love of the past is the idea that, that, there, that we need to return to that idealized past. Uh, parenthetically, I would add, that never existed. It's a romantic notion of how it used to be. And we need to get back to that. This is what ISIS was all about, if I could bring them up in this holy place. That the ISIS movement, which in the eyes of any Muslim that you or I could talk to, are not Muslims, they are apostate Muslims, false Muslims who break dozens of core principles beloved in Islam, and yet they claim to be the ushers in of the new caliphate and so on and so on. That's a fundamentalism, that we're going to impose our vision of how it used to be. Let's go back to that. You know, make the caliphate great again, that kind of thing. And, and, and that, that, that was their perspective. Let's, oh, what? I didn't, I didn't want to get political or anything here. But, but there's this idea that we don't have to figure out what's wrong. We just need to go back. And that is, I think, a really insidious second principle of the fundamentalist world. The third idea that's woven together with that second idea is this, that fundamentalism has an enemy. And you know how unifying it is for a group to have an enemy, yeah? And so the fundamentalist mindset names as its enemy modernity. Anything modern, multiculturalism, LGBT rights, um, this rock and roll music with all that hip shaking. Um, um, All of those, you know, 
gender equality, transgender issues, evidence-based science, evolution, climate change, you know, the modern perspective is the enemy. A code word for that often is Hollywood. And so, you know, that's the thing to fear are the messy arts and the messy humanities and all of that, all of that investigative experimentation. That's the enemy. And so that's another quality. The fourth quality kind of comes out of all of those. I would call it religious exclusivism. And we touched on it a moment ago. That if you claim that your interpretation of scripture is the only correct interpretation and that your theology is the only correct theology, then you are effectively saying that not only are all other interpretations false, but all other religions are false too. And that's just... a that, that's a real conversation killer. When your basic theology is, if you don't convert to my religion, God cuts you off. You are going to hell. And so one of the most regrettable effects of fundamentalism is the notion that the world is a hard dualism between good and evil, and that evil must be opposed in every way possible. And I'm always reminded of that line, have you noticed that God hates all the same people you do? <laughs> so how you, define, how, how, how you define evil is kind of, you know, pretty, pretty subjective thing, right? So, but tucked up inside that fundamentalist duality then between the sacred and the profane and good and evil is this more insidious and I'd say dangerous idea that, that human beings are inherently evil the doctrine of original sin. And that, therefore, human beings need to be carefully divided up into different categories and hierarchized so that some are better than others. And that there are these entire categories of people that we are to fear and entire other categories of people that we are to inherently trust. And all of that comes out of that exclusivity consciousness. And I... And I, and I suppose this is another characteristic of fundamentalist consciousness, that the notion of purity, look at how the notion of purity becomes an obsession. If the world is a fallen place, then you do not mingle with it. You transcend it. So let's contrast all of that with spirituality an equally difficult thing to define because there's so many facets to this jewel. And I don't know if we can reconcile fundamentalism and spirituality. That's not my aim this morning. I'd love you to try and then email me how you worked it out. <laughs> but I'm just really trying to shine light on these two sets of worldviews so that I can better sit down and break bread with everybody. And... Maybe it's not about figuring it out. Maybe it's about finding a third place and not choosing between these two. So what does it mean to be spiritual? Some people put it this way, that religion is following the spiritual experience of another and spirituality is having your own experience. I don't know if that gets it all. But that's an interesting starting point. Do we follow someone who had a spiritual experience, a Moses, a Jesus, a Muhammad, a Buddha? Or do we ourselves seek what they sought? And that is one way of beginning to think about maybe what spirituality might mean. In my business in academia, 
as a professor of, of philosophy and religious studies, we, we have this thing called SBNRs because it's so long to say spiritual but not religious. So there's a category of Americans. It's a growing category in religious studies demographics called SBNRs. So are you an SBNR? Here's some of the characteristics. Um, something's been changing in the American religious landscape uh, over the last, say, 100 years. It used to be that you were born a Methodist, you grew up as a Methodist, you married a Methodist, you had some Methodist kids, and then they buried you in the Methodist cemetery. And everybody kind of stayed in their lane, you know? And, and that is gone now. I mean, I know you know that because you've all left your faith family of origin too, most of you. Because most Americans now have left their faith family of origin and are on the free market. Because <laughs> we're Americans, we're consumers, damn it. And we look, through the, we look through the catalogs like, I'll have a little bit of that. I'll burn some sage when I get a new apartment. I got my Buddha on the shelf. Got to go to a Christian church for Easter because that kind of rules and, you know, and then uh, I go to my yoga class. I got my yoga mat at Target and namaste. So, you know, and that's, that's how we do it. So that's a quality of an SBNR. They pick and choose, which is, which is a terrible sin from the fundamentalist mindset. Oh, you can't pick and choose. You must take the whole thing or you don't get any of it. And we're like, no, I think I'm going to pick and choose and not apologize for that. But let's, let's, let's go a little deeper now. So this number surprised me. Did you know that 90% of Americans say that, yes, they believe in God? I thought that number was, to me, surprisingly high. I'm like, where are my atheists at? But then it gets better when you drill down into that data. Well, okay, that 90% of Americans that say they believe in God, what do they mean by God? And that's where it gets wild, right? Because 86% of those people no longer see God as someone somewhere. They no longer see God as someone somewhere, an entity you know, floating outside of space and time who's logging everything kind of a cosmic Santa Claus who's going to find out who's naughty and nice and making a list and checking it twice. Yeah, that God. Most people no longer really inhabit that theology. For most people, most of that 86%, they see God as something that is everywhere and in everything. Everywhere and in everything. A kind of pantheistic, use the force, Luke, kind of God. That, that we use the God word as a placeholder for the conscious aliveness and intelligence of being itself, of which we are, which, of course, is taught in rooms like this all over the world every, every day. And so 70% of Americans believe that truth can be found in many religions. So someone may be culturally and by family and by tradition and out of choice Jewish or Catholic or whatever, but they still hold this view that, yeah, you know, this isn't the only game. This is what I do. This is what we do. But they're doing other stuff all over town, and it's great. That God is bigger than religion. So SBNRs are great uh, combiners of things, as we already thought about. And here's another quality of the SBNR, spiritual but not religious. They tend to view religion and spirituality through the lens of, of, of self-improvement or self-actualization. 
So we come into spiritual community not to become who they want us to be, but to become who we really are, to learn tools and to get community support for the birthing that we feel coming through us of our most authentic self. That's how people in the spiritual column tend to think about this business here. So here's what a very spiritual scientist named Albert Einstein said about all this. He said, he said all religions, all arts, and all sciences are branches of the same tree. See, fundamentalists would, would not talk like that. He goes on, all these aspirations are directed toward ennobling man's life, lifting it from the sphere of mere physical existence, and leading the individual toward freedom, end quote. So science has to be a part of that. Because in the consciousness that remains open to spirituality, there's a basic trust, I think, of evidence-based science. Because we have to trust that, that God gave us these minds so that we might better find our way toward ever-increasingly accurate portraits of reality instead of the contrary view that you find in some fundamentalist communities that science and evidence are, as some of them speak, the deceptions of Satan, that dinosaur bones were planted in the ground by the devil to dissuade us from the truth of creationism and other such madness. I'm sorry, I'm not soft-selling it very well today, am I? <laughs> yeah. Why can't you be more balanced, Peter? I don't know. So as Ralph Waldo Emerson put it, and I think this is a nice way to put it, the religion that is afraid of science dishonors God and commits suicide. That's, that's from the 1830s, right? He was already kind of waking up to that. The religion that is afraid of science dishonors God and commits suicide. Ouch. So let's sum up the differences then between fundamentalism and spirituality. I think fundamentalism looks back and spirituality looks ahead. I think fun fundamentalism is fundamentally fearful while spirituality is fundamentally faithful. I think fundamentalism takes a battle stance against the fallen world while spirituality optimistically welcomes whatever's next, knowing and trusting that it is for the good. And I'm struck by this, that the God of fundamentalism seems unwilling or unable to craft abundance and goodness for all. That the God of fundamentalism picks winners and losers. I'm struck by that. While the God or the higher power of spirituality is the very definition of universal abundance and goodness and is limitless. So I think this too, that fun fundamentalism sees change, transformation, and evolution as inherently destructive forces. Because the more we change and transform and evolve, the farther away we get from that perfect past. Whereas in spirituality, we see change, transformation, and evolution as the means by which the highest good is made manifest. And I may not understand the forms that it is taking. But there is still this fundamental trust that, well, I'm just going to assume this is all for the best in the long view. 
So fun fundamentalism picks winners and losers and, and divides humanity into elite groups and the undesirable groups, while spirituality recognizes and honors the infinite value of all cultures, all life forms. And that gets us to racism. And it's always so challenging and difficult to talk about or any kind of hierarchical consciousness where some people are allegedly above others. Now, I want to say this very carefully so I don't mess it up. Because this is going to be on YouTube forever. <laughs> Tonight. <laughs> Not all fundamentalists are racists. But all racists are fundamentalists. In this sense, because the, I believe, mistaken notion of hierarchical purity in which oneself is always the superior <laughs> type is that exact kind of rigid, egoic thinking that we were identifying before. That racism is the notion of hierarchical purity superimposed over the rich and vibrantly device tap, uh, diverse tapestry of humanity. And, and you hear some voices um, no longer complaining about illegal immigration, but complaining about all immigration. Laura Ingram, one of the most prominent pundits on Fox News three weeks ago, got on TV and said, you know, we're losing the America that we knew and love, and she is talking to her fellow white people, and she's saying, we're losing our America. I don't know who, who, our, who that group is exactly, because America has never been white and strictly English-speaking. But she's tapping into that us-against-them kind of consciousness. And that is an aspect, I think, of, fun, of fundamentalism that is particularly divisive. So to me, it seems that all fun, fundamentalism is rooted in fear while spirituality is rooted in faith. I think spiritual people just inherently trust that whatever's happening, whatever's evolving, no matter how confusing or personally painful it may be, um, that's just how destruction of old forms feels. And destruction is creation. And that the highest good is always giving birth to itself around us and through us. So f I think fun fundamentalism craves certainty. Whereas spirituality embraces ambiguity. It's okay to not know. It's okay to be humble and to not have all of the answers. But that's terrifying for those who are attracted to the fundamentalist consciousness. They want an ideology where everything is explained where everything locks together in a unified field theory in which they are at the top and protected against all of the dangers of the world, all of the wrong people and so on. So it almost seems as if for, fun, for, for fundamentalists, certainty has replaced God as the highest level of reality. That people claiming intellectual certainty, that seems like a kind of idolatry worshiping at the altar of our own self-serving pre uh, 
prejudices or whatever ideas that we already have sort of built in. Here's how F. Scott Fitzgerald put it. He said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the, the ability to function. So to, to be able to live with paradox and, am, and ambiguity, because bottom line, the people who founded the world's religions, the people who founded the world's spiritual traditions were not fundamentalists. Just go down the list. Quite the opposite, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, these are rebels. They're radicals, they're iconoclasts, they're revolutionaries. They shattered norms, they tore down all the old traditions. They made the orthodoxy and the fundamentalism of, of their own day crazy with how they were so busy ripping all of that down. You know, there's that line of Jesus that you don't hear a lot of sermons about. Matthew 10, 34, you can look it up later, where Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. There's no, I'm, I'm going to write a Christmas carol about it. There's no Christmas songs about that line. Do not suppose, he, he comes roaring in like Vishnu at the end of the world, right? It's like, I'm here to rip everything up. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth, Jesus says. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And in, and in, in, in the Hindu tradition, the sword of discrimination slices the veil of illusion so that we may realize our oneness. Fire, swords, that's what gods wield in some of the Indian mythology. So Jesus comes up here with a sword, and I think that's what he means. He's tearing down the past. He's leading us into a new mode of consciousness rooted not in membership and tribe, but in love and acceptance, not in fear and division and hierarchy, but in oneness. So it is not for us to look back for some ancient stone monument to hide behind. I think it's for us to move forward and, and to live fully in the broken openness of ambiguity. The mind will never have all the answers, but our, but our spiritual practices can carry us past this place where puzzles have power into Rumi's field, you know, that line we all love from that poem from Rumi, out, out beyond all ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field, I'll meet you there. With the soul, when the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. So my, my, my prayer today is that we will support each other's uncompromising individuality and each other's spiritual autonomy for if we, if we are all aspects of the one as we say we, we, we believe, then that means something. That means each of us need go no further than within the unimpeachable authority of our own experience to realize that not one of our steps leads away from the sacred essence of what we are. That there's nothing to seek, there's only something to realize and, and embody. As Khalil Gibran so beautifully wrote, your daily life is your temple and your religion. So this is it. Eden is now. You know, heaven is here. As you heard in these beautiful prayers and meditations that we've shared today and in these songs. Nirvana is this. We are awakened and free and whole. 
As Joseph Campbell said, if you don't get it here, you're not going to get it anywhere. <laughs> wow. So God's voice, as it cries out from the depths of your own conscience, is as high an authority as any scripture. That's the spiritual position. Utter blasphemy to the ears of a fundamentalist. Scripture is the authority. Your inner voice, don't trust that. That's where the demons come. So these are profoundly different perspectives. I don't know how to put them together. I'm wrestling with this in my own family. And I know you are too. So when confronted with those who place fear over love, let's just wrap it up here. When confronted with those of us with those who place fear over love, who favor tradition over spontaneous expressions of spirit, who divide us up into hierarchies with some lifted up and others cast out, I think we must never stop affirming the words of Jesus in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, by how well you love one another. And I'm just going to hold on to that and not try to figure it all out. But if I and you trust that, maybe there's a way to move ahead and, and recover our common humanity in the face of this difficult struggle that we all find ourselves in. So if, I, uh, if you came here for sweet comfort this morning, you're not getting it from me. But everybody else on the team is here for you. So namaste. Thank you.